Section 16 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Mafson Roberts. Book 3, Chapters 9 through 21. Chapter 9 The Tarentillian Law. Matters at home drifted back to their old state. The successes in the war forthwith evoked disorders in the city. Gaius Tarentilius Harsa was a tribune of the plebs that year. Thinking that the absence of the consuls afforded a good opportunity for tribunician agitation, he spent several days in haranguing the plebeians on the overbearing arrogance of the patricians. In particular, he inveighed against the authority of the consuls as excessive and intolerable in a free commonwealth, for whilst in name it was less invidious, in reality it was almost more harsh and oppressive than that of the kings had been. For now, he said, they had two masters instead of one, with uncontrolled, unlimited powers, who, with nothing to curb their license, directed all the threats and penalties of the laws against the plebeians. To prevent this unfettered tyranny from lasting forever, he said he would propose an enactment that a commission of five should be appointed to draw up in writing the laws, which regulated the powers of the consuls. Whatever jurisdiction over themselves the people gave the consul, that, and that only, was he to exercise. He was not to regard his own license and caprice as law. When this measure was promulgated, the patricians were apprehensive lest in the absence of the consuls they might have to accept the yoke. A meeting of the senate was convened by Quintus Fabius, the prefect of the city. He made such a violent attack upon the proposed law and its author that the threats and intimidation could not have been greater even if the two consuls had been standing by the tribune, threatening his life. He accused him of plotting treason, of seizing a favorable moment for compassing the ruin of the commonwealth. Had the gods, he continued, given us a tribune like him last year, during the pestilence and the war, nothing could have stopped him. After the death of the two consuls, whilst the state was lying prostrate, he would have passed laws amid the universal confusion to deprive the commonwealth of the power of the consuls. He would have led the Volscians and the Aqui in an attack on the city. Why, surely it is open to him to impeach the consuls for whatever tyranny or cruelty they may have been guilty of towards any citizen, to bring them to trial before those very judges, one of whom had been their victim. His action was making not the authority of the consuls, but... The power of the tribunes, odious and intolerable, and after being exercised peaceably and in harmony with the patricians, that power was now reverting to its old evil practices. As to Tarentilius, he would not dissuade him from continuing as he began. As to you, said Fabius, the other tribunes, we beg you to reflect that in the first instance your power was conferred upon you for the assistance of individual citizens, not for the ruin of all. You have been elected as tribunes of the plebs, not as enemies of the patricians. To us it is distressing. To you it is a source of odium that the commonwealth should be thus attacked while it is without its head. You will not impair your rights, but you will lessen the odium felt against you if you arrange with your colleague to have the whole matter adjourned to the arrival of the consuls. Even the Aquian Volscians, after the consuls had been carried off by the epidemic last year, did not harass us with a cruel and ruthless war. The tribunes came to an understanding with Tarentilius, and the proceedings were ostensibly adjourned, but, as a matter of fact, abandoned. The consuls were immediately summoned home. Chapter 10 
Lucretius returned with an immense amount of booty and with a still more brilliant reputation. This prestige he enhanced on his arrival by laying out all the booty in the Campus Martius for three days, that each person might recognize and take away his own property. The rest, for which no owners appeared, was sold. By universal consent, a triumph was due to the consul, but the matter was delayed through the action of the tribune who was pressing his measure. The consul regarded this as the more important question. For some days, the subject was discussed both in the Senate and the popular assembly. At last, the tribune yielded to the supreme authority of the consul and dropped his measure. Then the consul and his army received the honor they deserved. At the head of his victorious legions, he celebrated his triumph over the Volscians and Aqui. The other consul was allowed to enter the city without his troops and enjoy an ovation. The following year, the new consuls, Publius Volumnius and Servius Sulpicius, were confronted by the proposed law of Tarentilius, which was now brought forward by the whole college of tribunes. During the year, the sky seemed to be on fire. There was a great earthquake. An ox was believed to have spoken. The year before this rumor found no credence. Amongst other portents, it rained flesh, and an enormous number of birds are said to have seized it while they were flying about. What fell to the ground lay about for several days without giving out any bad smell. The Sibylline books were consulted by the Dumviri, and the prediction was found of dangers which would result from a gathering of aliens, attempts on the highest points of the city, and consequent bloodshed. Amongst other notices, there was a solemn warning to abstain from all seditious agitations. The tribunes alleged that this was done to obstruct the passing of the law, and a desperate conflict seemed imminent. As though to show how events revolve in the same cycle year by year, the Herniki reported that the Volscians and Aqui, in spite of their exhaustion, were equipping fresh armies. Antium was the center of the movement. The colonists of Antium were holding public meetings in Akedera, the capital, and the main strength of the war. On this information being laid before the Senate, orders were given for a levy. The consuls were instructed to divide the operations between them. The Volscians were to be the province of the one, the Aqui of the other. The tribunes, even in face of the consuls, filled the forum with their shouts, declaring that the story of a Volscian war was a prearranged comedy. The Herniki had been prepared beforehand for the part they were to play. The liberties of the Roman were not being repressed by straightforward opposition, but were being cunningly fooled away. It was impossible to persuade them that the Volscians and Aqui, after being almost exterminated, could themselves commence hostilities. A new enemy, therefore, was being sought for, a colony which had been a loyal neighbor and was being covered with infamy. It was against the unoffending people of Antium that war was declared. It was against the Roman plebs that war was really being waged. After loading them with arms, they would drive them in hot haste out of the city and wreak their vengeance on the tribunes by sentencing their fellow citizens to banishment. By this means, they might be quite certain, the law would be defeated, unless, while the question was still undecided and they were still at home, still unenrolled, they took steps to prevent their being ousted from their occupation of the city and forced under the yoke of servitude. If they showed courage, help would not be wanting. The tribunes were unanimous. There was no cause for alarm, nor danger from abroad. The gods had taken care the previous year that their liberties should be safely protected. Chapter 11. Quinctius Queso's Opposition and Banishment Thus far, the tribunes. The consuls at the other end of the forum, however, placed their chairs in full view of the tribunes and proceeded with the levy. 
The tribunes ran to the spot, carrying the assembly with them. A few were cited, apparently as an experiment, and a tumult arose at once. As soon as anyone was seized by the consul's orders, a tribune ordered him to be released. None of them confined himself to his legal rights, trusting to their strength they were bent upon getting what they set their minds upon by main force. The methods of the tribunes in preventing the enrollment were followed by the patricians in obstructing the law, which was brought forward every day that the assembly met. The trouble began when the tribunes had ordered the people to proceed to vote. The patricians refused to withdraw. The older members of the order were generally absent from proceedings, which were certain not to be controlled by reason, but given over to recklessness and license. The consuls, too, for the most part, kept away, lest in the general disorder the dignity of their office might be exposed to insult. Caesa was a member of the Quinctian House, and his noble descent in great bodily strength and stature made him a daring and intrepid young man. To these gifts of the gods, he added brilliant military qualities and eloquence as a public speaker, so that no one in the state was held to surpass him either in speech or action. When he took his stand in the middle of a group of patricians, conspicuous amongst them all, carrying, as it were in his voice and personal strength, all dictatorships and consulships combined, he was the one to withstand the attacks of the tribunes and the storms of popular indignation. Under his leadership, the tribunes were often driven from the forum, the plebeians routed and chased away, anybody who stood in his way went off stripped and beaten. It became quite clear that if this sort of thing were allowed to go on, the law would be defeated. When the other tribunes were now almost in despair, Aulus Virginius, one of the college, impeached Caso on a capital charge. This procedure inflamed more than it intimidated his violent temper, he opposed the law and harassed the plebeians more fiercely than ever, and declared regular war against the tribunes. His accuser allowed him to rush to his ruin and fan the flame of popular hatred, and so supply fresh material for the charges to be brought against him. Meantime, he continued to press the law, not so much in the hope of carrying it as in order to provoke Queso to greater recklessness. Many wild speeches and exploits of the younger patricians were fastened on Queso to strengthen the suspicions against him. Still, the opposition to the law was kept up. Aulus Virginius frequently said to the plebeians, Are you now aware, Quirites, that you cannot have the law which you desire? And Cairo, as a citizen, together? Yet, why do I talk of the law? He is a foe to liberty. He surpasses all the Tarquins in tyranny. Wait till you see the man who now, in private station, acts the king in audacity and violence. Wait till you see him made consul or dictator. His words were endorsed by many who complained of having been beaten, and the tribune was urged to bring the matter to a decision. Chapter 12 The day of trial was now at hand, and it was evident that men generally believed that their liberty depended upon the condemnation of Queso. At last, to his great indignation, he was constrained to approach individual members of the plebs. He was followed by his friends, who were amongst the foremost men of the state. Titus Quinctius Capitolinus, who had three times been consul, after recounting his own numerous distinctions and those of his family, asserted that neither in the Quinctian house nor in the Roman state did there exist another such example of personal merit and youthful courage. He had been the foremost soldier in his army. He had often fought under his own eyes. Spurius Furius said that Caso had been sent by Quinctus Capitolinus to his assistance when in difficulties, and that no single person had done more to retrieve the fortunes of the day. Lucius Lucretius, the consul of the previous year, 
in the splendor of his newly won glory, associated Queso with his own claim to distinction, enumerated the actions in which he had taken part, recounted his brilliant exploits on the march and in the field, and did his utmost to persuade them to retain as their fellow citizen a young man furnished with every advantage that nature and fortune could give, who would be an immense power in any state of which he became a member, rather than drive him to an alien people. As to what had given such offense, his hot temper and audacity, these faults were being continually lessened. What was wanting in him, prudence, was increasing day by day. As his faults were decaying and his virtues maturing, they ought to allow such a man to live out his years in the commonwealth. Among those who spoke for him was his father, Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus. He did not go over all his merits again, for fear of aggravating the feeling against him, but he pleaded for indulgence to the errors of youth. He himself had never injured anyone either by word or deed, and for his own sake he implored them to pardon his son. Some refused to listen to his prayers, lest they should incur the displeasure of their friends. Others complained of the maltreatment they had received, and by their angry replies showed beforehand what their verdict would be. Chapter 13 Over and above the general exasperation, one charge in particular weighed heavily against him. Marius Volscius Fichter, who had some years previously been tribune of the plebs, had come forward to give evidence that not long after the epidemic had visited the city, he had met some young men strolling in the Sabura. A quarrel broke out, and his elder brother, still weak from illness, was knocked down by a blow from Queso's fist and carried home in a critical condition, and afterwards died, he believed, in consequence of the blow. He had not been allowed by the consuls during the years that had elapsed to obtain legal redress for the outrage. Whilst Volskius was telling the story in a loud tone of voice, so much excitement was created that Queso was very near losing his life at the hands of the people. Virginius ordered him to be arrested and taken to prison. The patricians meant violence by violence. Titus Quinctius called out that when the day of the trial has been fixed for anyone indicated on a capital charge and is near at hand, his personal liberty ought not to be interfered with before that case is heard and sentence given. The tribune replied that he was not going to inflict punishment upon a man not yet found guilty, but he should keep him in prison till the day of the trial, that the Roman people might be in a position to punish one who has taken a man's life. The other tribunes were appealed to, and they saved their prerogative by a compromise. They forbade him to be cast into prison, and announced as their decision that the accused should appear in court, and if he failed to do so, he should forfeit a sum of money to the people. The question was, what sum would it be fair to fix? The matter was referred to the Senate. The accused was detained in the assembly whilst the senators were deliberating. They decided that he should give sureties, and each surety was bound in 3,000 asses. It was left to the tribunes to decide how many should be given. They fixed the number at ten. The prosecutor released the accused on that bail. Queso was the first who gave securities on a state trial. After leaving the forum, he went the following night into exile amongst the Tuscans. When the day for the trial came, it was pleaded in defense of his non-appearance that he had changed his domicile by going into exile. Virginius, nonetheless, went on with the proceedings, but his colleagues, to whom an appeal was made, dismissed the assembly. The money was unmercifully extorted from the father, who had to sell all his property and live for some time like a banished man in an out-of-the-way hut on the other side of the Tiber. Chapter 14. The Tarentillian Law Again This trial and the discussions on the law kept the state employed. 
there was a respite from foreign troubles. The patricians were cowed by the banishment of Queso, and the tribunes, having, as they thought, gained the victory, regarded the law as practically carried. As far as the senior senators were concerned, they abandoned the control of public affairs, but the younger members of the order, mostly those who had been Queso's intimates, were more bitter than ever against the plebeians, and quite as aggressive. They made much more progress by conducting the attack in a methodical manner. The first time that the law was brought forward after Queso's flight, they were organized in readiness, and on the tribunes furnishing them with a pretext by ordering them to withdraw, they attacked them with a huge army of clients in such a way that no single individual could carry home any special share of either glory or odium. The plebeians claimed that for one Queso, thousands had sprung up. During the intervals when the tribunes were not agitating the law, nothing could be more quiet or peaceable than these same men. They accosted the plebeians affably, entered into conversation with them, invited them to their houses, and when present in the forum even allowed the tribunes to bring all other questions forward without interrupting them. They were never disagreeable to anyone either in public or private, except when a discussion commenced on the law. On all other occasions, they were friendly with the people. Not only did the tribunes get through all their other business quietly, but they were even re-elected for the following year, without any offensive remark being made still less any violence being offered. By gentle handling, they gradually made the plebs tractable, and through these methods the law was cleverly evaded throughout the year. Chapter 15 The new consuls, Caius Claudius, the son of Appius, and Publius Valerius Publicola, took over the state in a quieter condition than usual. The new year brought nothing new. Political interests centered on the fate of the law, the more the younger senators ingratiated themselves with the plebeians, the fiercer became the opposition of the tribunes. They tried to arouse suspicion against them by alleging that a conspiracy had been formed. Queso was in Rome, and plans were laid for the assassination of the tribunes and the whole massacre of the plebeians. And further, that the senior senators had assigned to the younger members of the order the task of abolishing the tribunician authority so that the political conditions might be the same as they were before the occupation of the Sacred Hill. War with the Volskians and Aqui had become now a regular thing of almost annual recurrence, and was looked forward to with apprehension. The capital surprised and taken. A fresh misfortune happened nearer home. The political refugees and a number of slaves, some 2,500 in all, under the leadership of Appius Herdonius, the Sabine, seized the capital and citadel by night. Those who refused to join the conspirators were instantly massacred. Others in the confusion rushed in wild terror down to the forum. Various shouts were heard, To arms! The enemy is in the city! The consuls were afraid either to arm the plebeians or to leave them without arms. Uncertain as to the nature of the trouble which had overtaken the city, whether it was caused by citizens or by foreigners, whether due to the embittered feelings of the plebs or to the treachery of the slaves, they tried to allay the tumult, but their efforts only increased it. In their terrified and distracted state, the population could not be controlled. Arms were, however, distributed, not indiscriminately, but only as was an unknown foe to secure protection sufficient for all emergencies. The rest of the night they spent in posting men in all the convenient situations in the city, while their uncertainty as to the nature and numbers of the enemy kept them in anxious suspense. Daylight at length disclosed the enemy and their leader. Appius Herdonius was calling from the capital to the slaves to win their liberty, saying that he had espoused the cause of all the wretched in order to restore the exiles who had been wrongfully banished and remove the heavy yoke from the necks of the slaves. 
He would rather that this be done at the bidding of the Roman people, but if that were hopeless, he would run all risks and rouse the Volscians and Aequi. Chapter 16 The state of affairs became clearer to the senators and consuls. They were, however, apprehensive, lest behind these openly declared aims there should be some design of the Veientines or Sabines. And whilst there was this large hostile force within the city, the Etruscan and Sabine legions should appear, and then the Volscians and Aequi, their standing foes, should come not into their territory to ravage, but into the city itself, already partly captured. Many and various were their fears. What they most dreaded was a rising of the slaves, when every man would have an enemy in his own house, whom it would be alike unsafe to trust and not to trust, since by withdrawing confidence he might be made a more determined enemy. Such threatening and overwhelming dangers could only be surmounted by unity and concord, and no fears were felt as to the tribunes or the plebs. That evil was mitigated, for as it only broke out when there was a respite from other evils, it was believed to have subsided now in the dread of foreign aggression. Yet it, more than almost anything else, helped to further depress the fortunes of the sinking state. For such madness had seized the tribunes that they maintained that it was not war, but an empty phantom of war which had settled in the capital, in order to divert the thoughts of the people from the law. Those friends, they said, and clients of the patricians would depart more silently than they had come if they found their noisy demonstration frustrated by the passing of the law. They then summoned the people to lay aside their arms and form an assembly for the purpose of carrying the law. Meantime, the consuls, more alarmed at the action of the tribunes than at the nocturnal enemy, convened a meeting of the Senate. Chapter 17 When it was reported that arms were being laid aside and men were deserting their posts, Publius Valerius left his colleague to keep the Senate together and hurried to the tribunes at the Tempulum. What, he asked, is the meaning of this, tribunes? Are you going to overthrow the state under the leadership of Appius Herdonius? Has the man whose appeals failed to rouse a single slave been so successful as to corrupt you? Is it when the enemy is over our heads that you decide that men should lay down their arms and discuss laws? Then, turning to the assembly, he said, If, Quirites, you feel no concern for the city, no anxiety for yourselves, still show reverence for your gods who have been taken captive by an enemy. Jupiter Optimus Maximus, Queen Juno, and Minerva, with other gods and goddesses, are being besieged. A camp of slaves holds the tutelary deities of your country in its power. Is this an appearance which you think a state in its senses ought to present? A large hostile force not only within the walls, but in the citadel, above the forum, above the senate house, whilst meantime the assembly is being held in the forum, the senate are in the senate house, and as though peace and quiet prevailed, a senator is addressing the house, whilst the Quirites in the assembly are proceeding to vote? Would it not be more becoming for every man, patrician and plebeian alike, for the consuls and tribunes, for gods and men, to come one and all to the rescue with their arms, to run to the capital and restore liberty and calm to that most venerable abode of Jupiter Optimus Maximus? O oh, Father Romulus, grant to thine offspring that spirit in which thou didst once win back from these same Sabines the citadel which had been captured with gold. Bid them take the road on which thou didst lead thine army. Behold, I, the consul, will be the first to follow thee, and thy footsteps as far as mortal man can follow a god. He ended his speech by saying that he was taking up arms, and he summoned all the Quirites to arms. If anyone tried to obstruct, he should now ignore the limits set to his consular authority, the power of the tribunes, and the laws which made him inviolable, and whoever or wherever he might be, 
whether in the capital or the forum, he should treat him as a public enemy. The tribunes had better order arms to be taken up against Publius Valerius, the consul, as they forbade them to be used against Appius Herdonius. He would dare to do in the case of the tribunes what the head of his family had dared to do in the case of the kings. There was every prospect of an appeal to force, and of the enemy enjoying the spectacle of a riot in Rome. However, the law could not be voted upon, nor could the consul go to the capital, for night put an end to the threatened conflict. As night came on, the tribunes retired, afraid of the consul's arms. When the authors of the disturbance were out of the way, the senators went about amongst the plebeians, and mingling with different groups pointed out the seriousness of the crisis, and warned them to reflect into what a dangerous position they were bringing the state. It was not a contest between patricians and plebeians. Patricians and plebeians alike, the stronghold of the city, the temples of the gods, the guardian deities of the state, and of every home, were being surrendered to the enemy. While these steps were being taken to lay the spirit of discord in the forum, the consuls had gone away to inspect the gates and walls in case of any movement on part of the Sabines or Veientines. Chapter 18 The same night, messengers reached Tusculum with tidings of the capture of the citadel, the seizure of the capital, and the generally disturbed state of the city. Lucius Mamilius was at that time dictator of Tusculum. After hurriedly convening the Senate and introducing the messengers, he strongly urged the senators not to wait until envoys arrived from Rome begging for help. The fact of the danger and the seriousness of the crisis, the gods who watched over alliances and loyalty to treaties, all demanded instant action. Never again would the gods vouchsafe so favorable an opportunity for conferring an obligation on so powerful a state, or one so close to their own doors. They decided that help should be sent. The men of military age were enrolled. Arms were distributed. As they approached Rome in the early dawn, they presented in the distance the appearance of enemies. It seemed as though Aequi or Volscians were coming. When this groundless alarm was removed, they were admitted into the city and marched in order into the forum, where Publius Valerius, who had left his colleague to direct the troops on guard at the gates, was forming his army for battle. It was his authority that achieved this result. He declared that if, when the capital was recovered and the city pacified, they would allow the covert dishonesty of the law, which the tribunes supported, to be explained to them, he would not oppose the holding of a plebeian assembly. For he was not unmindful of his ancestors, or of the name he bore, which made the protection of the plebs, so to speak, a hereditary care. Following his leadership, amid the futile protests of the tribunes, they marched in order of battle up to the Capitoline Hill, the legion from Tusculum marching with them. The Romans and their allies were striving which should have the glory of recapturing the citadel. Each of the commanders were encouraging his men. Then the enemy lost heart. If their only confidence was in strength of their position, whilst thus demoralized the Romans and allies advanced to the charge. They had already forced their way into the vestibule of the temple when Publius Valerius, who was in the front cheering on his men, was killed. Publius Volumnius, a man of consular rank, saw him fall. Directing his men to protect the body, he ran to the front and took the consul's place. In the heat of their charge, the soldiers were not aware of the loss they had sustained. They gained the victory before they knew that they were fighting without a general. Many of the exiles defiled the temple with their blood. Many were taken as prisoners. Hardonius was killed. So the capital was recovered. Punishment was inflicted on the prisoners according to their condition, whether slave or free man. A vote of thanks was accorded to the Tusculans, and the capital was cleansed and solemnly purified. It is stated that the plebeians threw quadrantes into the council's house, 
that he might have a more splendid funeral. Chapter 19 The Tarantillian Law Fresh Troubles No sooner were order and quiet restored than the tribunes began to press upon the senators the necessity of redeeming the promise they made by Publius Valerius. They urged Claudius to free his colleagues Manes from the guilt of deception by allowing the law to be proceeded with. The consul refused to allow it until he had secured the election of a colleague. The contest went on till the election was held. In the month of December, after the utmost exertions on the part of the patricians, Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus, the father of Queso, was elected consul and at once took up his office. The plebeians were dismayed at the prospect of having as a consul a man incensed against them and powerful in the warm support of the Senate, in his own personal merits and in his three children, not one of whom was Queso's inferior in loftiness of mind while they were his superiors in exhibiting prudence and moderation where necessary. When he entered into his magistracy, he continually delivered harangues from the tribunal, in which he censured the Senate as energetically as he put down the plebs. It was, he said, through the apathy of that order that the tribunes of the plebs, now perpetually in office, acted as kings in their speeches and accusations, as though they were living not in the commonwealth of Rome, but in some wretched ill-regulated family. Courage, resolution, all that makes youth distinguished at home and in the battlefield, had been expelled and banished from Rome with his son Queso. Loquacious agitators, sowers of discord, made tribunes for the second and third time in succession. They were living by means of infamous practices in regal licentiousness. Did that fellow, he asked, Aulus Virginius, because he did not happen to be in the capital, deserve less punishment than Appius Herondius? Considerably more, by Jove, if any choose to form a true estimate of the matter. Herundius, if he did nothing else, avowed himself an enemy, and in a measure summoned you to take up arms. This man, by denying the existence of a war, deprived you of your arms, and exposed you defenseless to the mercy of your slaves and exiles. And did you, without disrespect to Caius Claudius and the dead Publius Valerius, I would ask, did you advance against the capital? Before you cleared these enemies out of the forum, it is an outrage on gods and men that when there were enemies in the citadel, in the capital, and the leader of the slaves and exiles, after profaning everything, had taken up his quarters in the very shrine of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, it should be at Tusculum, not at Rome, that arms were first taken up. It was doubtful whether the citadel of Rome would be delivered by the Tusculan general Lucius Mamilius or by the consuls Publius Valerius and Caius Claudius. We, who had not allowed the Latins to arm, even to defend themselves against invasion, would have been taken and destroyed, had not these very Latins taken up arms unbidden. This, tribunes, is what you call protecting the plebs, exposing it to be helplessly butchered by the enemy. If the meanest number of your order, which you have as it were severed from the rest of the people and made into a province, a state of your own, if such a one, I say, were to report to you that his house was beset by armed slaves, you would, I presume, think that you ought to render him assistance. Was not Jupiter Optimus Maximus, when shut in by armed slaves and exiles, worthy to receive any human aid? Do these fellows demand that their persons shall be sacred and inviolable, when the very gods themselves are neither sacred nor inviolable in their eyes? But... Steeped as you are in crimes against gods and men, you give out that you will carry your law this year. Then, most assuredly, if you do carry it, the day when I was made consul will be a far worse day for the state 
than that on which Publius Valerius perished. Now I give you notice, Quirites. The very first thing that my colleague and myself intend to do is to march the legions against the Volscians in Aequi. By some strange fatality, we find the gods more propitious when we are at war than when we are at peace. It is better to infer from what has occurred in the past than to learn by actual experience how great the danger from those states would have been had they known that the capital was in the hands of exiles. Chapter 20 The consul's speech produced an impression on the plebs. The patricians were encouraged and regarded the state as re-established. The other consul, who showed more courage in supporting than in proposing, was quite content for his colleague to take the first step in a matter of such importance, but in carrying it out he claimed his full responsibility as consul. The tribunes laughed at what they considered idle words, and constantly asked, by what method were the consuls going to take out an army, when no one would allow one to be levied? We do not, said Quinctius, require to make a levy. At the time when Publius Valerius supplied the people with arms for the recovery of the capital, they all took the oath to muster at the consul's orders, and not to disband without his orders. We, therefore, issue an order that all of you who took that oath appear under arms tomorrow at Lake Regulus. Thereupon, the tribunes wanted to release the people from their oath by raising a quibble. They argued that Quinctius was not consul when the oath was taken, but the neglect of the gods, which prevails in this age, had not yet appeared, nor did every man interpret oaths and laws in just the same sense which suited him best. He preferred to shape his own conduct by their requirements. The tribunes, finding any attempt at obstruction hopeless, set themselves to delay the departure of the army. They were the more anxious to do this, as a report had got abroad that the augurs had received instructions to repair to Lake Regulus, and set apart with the usual augural formalities a spot where business could be transacted by a properly constituted assembly. This would enable every measure which had been carried by the violent exercise of the tribunician authority to be repealed by the regular assembly of the tribes. All would vote as the consuls wished, for the right of appeal did not extend beyond a mile from the city, and the tribunes themselves, if they went with the army, would be subject to the authority of the consuls. These rumors were alarming, but what filled them with the greatest alarm were the repeated assertions of Quinctius that he should not hold an election of consuls. The diseases of the state were such that none of the usual remedies could check them. The commonwealth needed a dictator, in order that anyone who took steps to disturb the existing constitution might learn that from a dictator there lay no appeal. Chapter 21 The Senate was in the capital. Thither the tribunes proceeded, accompanied by the plebeians, in a great state of consternation. They loudly appealed for help, first to the consuls, then to the senators, but they did not shake the determination of the consul until the tribunes had promised that they would bow to the authority of the Senate. The consuls laid before the Senate the demands of the plebs and their tribunes, and decrees were passed that the tribunes should not bring forward their law during the year, nor should the consuls take the army out of the city. The Senate also judged it to be against the interests of the state that a magistrate's tenure of office should be prolonged, or that the tribunes should be re-elected. The consuls yielded to the authority of the Senate, but the tribunes, against the protests of the consuls, were re-elected. On this, the Senate also, to avoid giving any advantage to the plebs, reappointed Lucius Quinctius as consul. Nothing during the whole year roused the indignation of the consul more than this proceeding of theirs. Can I, he exclaimed, be surprised, conscript fathers, if your authority has little weight with the plebs? You yourselves are weakening it. Because, forsooth, 
they have disregarded the senatorial decree forbidding a magistrate's continuance in office. You yourselves wished it to be disregarded, that you may not be behind the populace in headstrong thoughtlessness, as though to possess more power in the state was to show more levity and lawlessness? It is undoubtedly a more idle and foolish thing to do away with one's own resolutions and decrees than with those of others. Imitate, conscript fathers, the inconsiderate multitude. Sin after the example of others, you who ought to be an example to others, rather than that others should act rightly after your example. As long as I do not imitate the tribunes or allow myself to be returned as consul in defiance of the resolution of the Senate. To you, Caius Claudius, I earnestly appeal that you, too, will restrain the Roman people from this lawlessness. As to myself, rest assured that I will accept your action in the firm belief that you have not stood in the way of my advancement to honor, but that I have gathered greater glory by rejecting it, and have removed the odium which my continuance in office would have provoked. Thereupon the two consuls issued a joint edict that no one should make Lucius Quinctius consul. If anyone attempted it, they would not allow the vote. End of section 16.